My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. Look, we knew this was coming. As soon as lockdown started, a year ago, we were all told to go home and stay there. And people who advocate for the safety of women began sounding the alarm bells. We even did it on this podcast, and we were far from the only ones. Often it will be, uh, you know, their actual safety has been threatened in an incident or a few where they decide that it's time to try to leave. And, and what they might do is, uh, you know, make a call while they're at work on, you know, a phone, like their office line, or physically go seek out resources at a sexual assault center or a shelter. As we know now, um, there are a lot of options that are not available. So naturally, governments and employers and businesses heeded the dire warnings, and they put in place resources and systems to help women trapped at home with their abusers. And then things got better. Not really. The numbers from last year arrived recently, and yes, they came with a spike in femicide. Here in Canada, 160 women and girls were killed last year, and that total is up compared to 2019. You're probably not surprised. What might surprise you is which women are most likely to be killed by a man, where it is most likely to happen, and how we talk about both of those things. 2020 was a terrible year for any number of reasons. But there is also a chance that it can teach us all a lesson about femicide, about what helps and what doesn't, about whose stories we hear and whose we don't. And it might also teach us why it's more complicated than you'd think, especially if you've been relying on headlines to guide you. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Julie Lalonde is an educator and an activist. She is the author of Resilience is Futile, and she is one of Canada's leading women's rights advocates. Hi, Julie. Hi, thanks for having me. Of course. Um, I wish it was under better circumstances, but we recorded an episode of this show uh, last year, a couple of months into the pandemic. And our expert uh, was saying that this was likely going to end up being a horrible year for violence against women and femicide. And now I guess we have some some data on that. Yeah, we have confirmation that 2020 was, in fact, a deadlier year for women in Canada than the year prior. So last year, 160 women were killed in Canada versus 2019, which was 146. Uh, again, in 2020, we had a high percentage of women killed by men. So 90% of those accused in last year's femicide are men. So we're talking about a very clearly gendered problem. How surprising uh, are those numbers or or not at all? They're not surprising to me because I have been doing this work for so long and I know that women are killed at very high rates, largely by men who claim to love them. 
But last year, I mean, there's so much that's happened in the past year that it's easy to forget. But last year, we also had Canada's worst mass shooting. So we had 23 people killed in Nova Scotia. And that certainly saw a spike in the rates of uh, deaths of women last year. And for example, what is on trend is that the deadliest places for women in Canada are the territories. But Nova Scotia was also added to the list last year in large part because of uh, what happened mm-hmm. horrifically last April in Nova Scotia? I mean, uh, uh, we certainly weren't the only place talking about the increased risk of violence against women during during lockdown and the pandemic. It was something I remember seeing in a ton of places. Um, did we do anything about that during lockdown? Are there any new resources that have come out of this, new programs, uh, anything? We did see some good chunks of money from the federal government. So last April, so already pretty quickly into the pandemic, there was an announcement of an additional $40 million for women's shelters and $10 million for services that support Indigenous women. And then just this February, so uh, you know, just a few weeks ago, the government announced $100 million that's invested in addressing the fact that women have been the most hit by the pandemic, not just because we've seen high rates of femicide, but also because women are the ones who've been the most impacted economically from the pandemic. So we are seeing some gendered focus from the government, which is great, but I'm not seeing necessarily an attitudinal shift uh, or a recognition that telling people to stay home is actually very lethal for a lot of women and girls in this country. What kinds of things could we have done to help with that attitudinal shift? Like if we were going to direct uh, our energy to something that would actually make a difference on the ground? Well, we know that women's shelters and sexual assault centers are at the front lines of these conversations. They are the ones who see the vast majority of survivors, more than police, for example, more than paid counseling services. Community-based organizations are seeing the most marginalized of survivors, and there is a huge demand in service as a result of the lockdown, but we haven't really seen that money come to them directly to do that frontline work. So that's really my biggest advice to Canadians as a whole, is if you have the means, absolutely make donations to your local shelters and sexual assault centers, because they are at the front lines of this long before and after the pandemic and that their work has become more difficult and therefore more costly having to invest in technology in order to provide counseling that is on a secure network that's not just using something like Skype that can be easily tracked into. But also, I think, in terms of attitudinally on an individual level, really breaking all of the myths and stereotypes about who you think is living at risk of violence and who you're making a concerted effort to check in on and, you know, not falling under the assumption of like, oh, you know, Sally lives with her husband and kids, so she must be fine. Who I'm really worried about is my friend, Julie, who lives alone. And instead, you know, not assuming that because someone is living with someone else that they're having a a great time under the pandemic um, and recognizing that people's capacity to ask for help is quite limited if they're living in the same home as their abuser. Well, let's follow that uh, thread for a moment. What does the data tell us um, about who is most at risk uh, in these situations from femicide? Well, what's quite surprising to a lot of people, I'm sure, is that the highest proportion of femicide victims in 2020 were women between the ages of 55 and 64. Hmm. Second was women between 25 and 34, which I don't think is surprising to many people. But 
ageism is something that has really been put in our faces over the last year as a result of COVID, but we're also seeing it in our femicide rates. For too long, we've assumed that violence against women is a young woman's problem and that as you age, you become safer. And yet what we know is that a large percentage, the highest proportion of people, of women who were killed last year were considered older or middle-aged, 55 to 64. And that 54% of femicide victims last year lived in a non-urban area. I come from rural communities across Northern Ontario. I'm not surprised to see that it is particularly deadly to be a woman experiencing violence in a rural community, but that's not common knowledge. And it's certainly not the way it's framed in our common discussions, but also how funding comes down from government. Typically, either provincially or federally, funding is allocated to based on a per capita basis or based right. on a population. Um, so the idea that, oh, you know, Toronto is bigger. Toronto deserves more resources. Renfrew County is quite small. They deserve fewer resources, except it's harder to reach clients in Renfrew County because of the barriers that rural women face. And so we're creating structural barriers as well as, I think, attitudinal barriers that think that women in rural communities are fine because everyone knows everyone. And therefore, if something was happening, people would know. And in fact, we know that's not the case at all. We can talk about rural areas uh, in a moment. But first, with regards to age, why is it uh, that the percentage of older women is so high? Do we know? There's a couple of theories. Uh, I would say that Canada needs to do some serious self-reflection right now um, because we're dealing with two pandemics, COVID and femicide. And we also lead the world in deaths by older women as a result of COVID. So we have really, truly abandoned older women in this country. And it's shameful. And we all need to be taken to account for that. And it's because we view older women as invisible. And so older women don't feel represented by a lot of uh, support organizations. And I, I consider myself guilty of that as well. You know, I've been embedded in the movement to end violence against women for almost 20 years and the vast majority of our work, our events, our outreach materials, the way we try to, you know, do education, all of it is really geared towards young or younger women. And so they're not considered as part of the policy or the, the outreach strategy. And so they don't know that they can access our services. They don't know that they can trust our services. But there's also the reality that, um, you know, if you're you're invisible in the world at large, right? We, we really think that, you know, sexual assault is about sex, for example. And so we can understand that young women are live at risk of sexual violence, but we don't really understand how an elderly woman could live at risk of sexual violence or intimate partner violence. And yet we're seeing it happen. How do we typically uh, report on these stories or cover them in a way that, you know, feeds into the narrative you just described? And if we were going to approach it, um, I guess, collectively as media, uh, in, in a way that would help this cause, what would we do differently? Well, I would really look to the incredible work of OAITH, which is an acronym that stands for the Ontario Association of Interval and Transition Houses. Every year, they do a femicide report uh, specific to Ontario. And they dug a little deeper this year, which was a real gift to all of us, because they also did media analysis. And they found, for example, that zero, not a single story last year, actually named the violence as femicide. So already we're not hmm. we're not normalizing the use of that term. But secondly, only 2% of media stories actually provided people with 
a tangible resource. So if they're, they see their story reflected in the news and they want to reach out to make sure that they're not another femicide statistic, we're not doing enough work to advertise those services. Um, and that's a huge media failure. Like there's nothing unethical or, you know, biased about saying, hey, you know, someone was murdered by someone that claimed to love her. If that feels like your worst nightmare, here are some, are some resources in the community. It seems minor, but it's not happening and it makes a huge difference. So that's one of the, the problems is that we individualize the issue. And instead of looking at it systemically, instead of looking at the fact that we know, for example, that women are overwhelmingly killed by a current or former partner. Secondly, by a family member, like women in this country are being killed by their brothers and fathers and cousins. And because we don't talk about it in those ways, and instead we don't talk about the systemic piece, we write it off as these one-off stories of this one tragic thing that happened to this woman or her, you know, this woman and her children, and it's awful and it's tragic and we have empathy, but we don't pull back and talk about how this is actually statistically very common um, and we need to talk about those systemic pieces. And I think the media has a responsibility to really contextualize stories. When one of these um, femicides happens and inevitably hits the news, what are you looking for when you watch the coverage or read the coverage? I'm looking for things like, are we overemphasizing the motives or the claimed motives of the accused? Uh, are we looking at, again, the context, whether or not there was a history of intimate partner violence in the family or really this really was uh, a shocking ordeal? I'm looking for media to stop interviewing the neighbors in these cases or you know the right. colleagues of the person that's been accused like to stop doing that work i can't believe he would do this thing he seemed like yeah, such a normal like, guy <laughs> yeah and it's so baffling to me in a time in which we are culturally are so obsessed with true crime are so obsessed with the banality of evil mm. and the idea that these monsters are everywhere and you know they were helping old ladies with their groceries and then they killed people and yet Right. When a story comes out, we we fall into the same tropes of like him never, which again is not just annoying for us as advocates. It's dangerous because again you're perpetuating the idea that women uh, need to just avoid these monstrous men, and if we did that, we would be safe, and that you know we don't talk about the fact that women are not believed because people go to bat for our abusers and say him now there's no way you know he's a pillar of the community or any of those things which again make women think oh if i come forward no one's going to believe me because you know my husband is a police officer or a politician and so it's not just annoying it's actually damaging to perpetuate these tropes um, and to again not provide the proper context my name is john cullen and i want to tell you a story it's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. With regards to older women um, being a high percentage of victims and yet still kind of being invisible, and I guess to your point, uh, being invisible in, in lots of different media coverage, not just about this, is that something that can change um, as Canada's population ages? Because we're about to have uh, the highest percentage of older women in the history of the country. Yeah, 
Yeah, I'm hoping it changes. Uh, I'm actually a feminist gerontologist by training. So I studied the social impacts of being an older woman in Canada uh, in grad school. And that's really kind of like the foundation of my work. And it is astounding to me that I, for example, could not find funding for my research because no one thought it was relevant. And I said, you know, in 10 years, we're everyone's going to be over 65 or under 25. Like this is going to have a huge social impact on us culturally. Um, and yet there was little interest in it. And even now, as I said, we're leading the world in deaths by older women of COVID. Like that should stop us all in our tracks. And it hasn't. And so I'm not surprised that we're not talking about the intersections of age and gender when it comes to femicide. Um, but it's a problem that needs to change. And I too long for the pre-pandemic days in so many ways, but we cannot go back to a normal where we house, warehouse elderly people. We don't check in on folks. We don't have that community care. And we just assume that if you're a woman who's, you know, now into menopause that Ooh, you're safe now. Uh, when in fact, we know that's not true. <laughs> and women outlive mm -hmm. men on average by eight to 10 years. Um, so aging is very much a gendered phenomenon, just sort of writ large. Um, but yeah, we don't talk about elder care, which means, of course, we're not talking about femicide against older women, because again, they're invisible in every single possible way from, you know, no roles for older women in Hollywood other than being someone's grandma <laughs> um, mm -hmm. to, yeah, the fact that when we're hosting events in the community and people provide childcare, there's no talk of, are you going to provide elder care? There's no real intergenerational social justice activism organizing other than in indigenous communities. And I think we really need to look at that and, and look at why it is that older people across the board are pretty invisible in this country, but particularly women. See, that's fascinating to me because I would have assumed that something like what you just described uh, applies across the entire world. But, you know, given the COVID uh, rates among older women, we're particularly bad at this. What makes us worse than other places? Uh, I would say <laughs> that we just historically have a very capitalist idea of what it means to be a human being, which is that your value is in your economic production. And because we don't value women's work and quote unquote care work, um, you have women who are, you know, in the context of our current elderly women who worked at home their entire lives, who provided for their family, that work is not considered valuable. Then you are living off of the pension of your husband, if you're lucky. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you're living in poverty, but trying to pull yourself up by your bootstraps um, in order to have any sense of dignity in the world. And so as Canadians, we have slowly moved away from having intergenerational um, housing, for example, or intergenerational just organizing. And we really just see, oh, you're no longer working anymore. You're not providing for the economy, then you don't matter to us anymore. Um, and so we have, for example, things like the number one demographic that volunteers with the elderly is other seniors huh. um, because they're the only ones that recognize like, hey, we exist and let's look out for each other. We know, for example, that isolation leads to physical and cognitive decline. Um, we know that boredom is actually like more detrimental to your health than anything else. We knew these things pre-COVID and in the context of the pandemic, we've cranked up the volume to 11. Um, and so we're not dealing with the fact that, hey, you know, when I did my research, one of the participants said to me, looked into my young, youthful face and said, you know, aging is a privilege. The alternative is that you die young. 
And we need to do better in this country to value elderly folks. And again, a recognition that it's mainstream white people who create policy that says it's perfectly humane to warehouse the elderly. Um, and we need to shift that mentality because it's not only going to help us address a whole myriad of issues, but especially uh, when we're looking at rates of femicide. It's been a, a long year of of these kinds of topics about, you know, bad things that the pandemic has made worse. And every time we talk about one, I try to ask, you know, are there lessons that you can see that we are learning from this and that we will take away um, when things, you know, quote unquote, go back to normal. I mean, one thing uh, that I think about that stupidly I probably hadn't thought through before this began is that, of course, it would be much harder for women who were at risk of abuse to survive this when you're trapped in your home with your abuser. And, you know, that's something that didn't occur to me till the pandemic struck. Is there anything that that will come away with um, that could help guide policy or guide where we invest going forward? Certainly, I think, as you said, the recognition that uh, long before the pandemic, women are overwhelmingly killed in their own homes versus men. When men are killed, it is overwhelmingly in public places. So we know the home is not a safe place for a lot of women and girls and children. I would say the second thing that I'm really hoping we take away is that piece, that understanding of the safety for women throughout the age, throughout the life continuum. So women, girls, older women, elderly women, like really recognizing that you don't just stop needing services because you've <laughs> hit menopause, right? Like that we're right. always at risk as women. And so we need to recognize, hey, like what is my relationship to the older folks in my life on a personal level, but also professionally? Do I see older people coming out to my events? Do am I when if I'm doing outreach about support services, am I considering the needs of older folks? And the third thing that I'm hoping that we stick to is my goodness, people are unknowingly having so many conversations about consent over the last year, and it's so beautiful, and I hope it continues, where we're actively asking for consent because there's people in your life that you're maybe on a, you know, they're in your bubble, so things are normal, and there's certain people that you'll only see with a mask, and maybe you run into a friend on the street and you explicitly ask, like, are we hugging? Are we not hugging? And we've, we're sort of normalizing this conversation of like, hey, you got to ask what people's boundaries are. And it's fascinating to me that in the context of COVID, we're not only normalizing that, we're like praising that as we should. But it's interesting, you know, just a few months before COVID, the big controversy was, can we teach consent in schools? Uh, and I think this has shown that we absolutely should be, but that it's also easy to do and that it's not just about sexual relationships. It's also just about, in general, um, checking in with people and respecting that they might have different boundaries than you do. And it's been very, very fascinating to watch that discussion evolve over the past year. And it's certainly one of my like top three things that I hope we maintain post-COVID is just normalizing, checking what people's boundaries are and respecting the answer that you receive. That's a great point. And I mean, that's something positive to come out of this. Now, before um, I let you go, because I was paying attention when you mentioned this earlier, for somebody who is listening and uh, is horrified by this, where can they make a difference right now? Where are resources needed and, and where can they go? 
I would say stop giving your money to intermediaries and give it directly to the organizations you want to support. If you have, you know, just do a quick Google search of your local resources. You can go to sheltersafe.ca, sheltersafe.ca, and see a map of all of the women's shelters across Canada. Find your local one, give them some money. Uh, if you have a local Indigenous organization, again, one in five femicide victims last year was an Indigenous woman or girl. So we have a lot of work to do there. So give them money directly. Um, you know, put money directly in the pockets of the people that are doing the work um, and really just ask them what it is that they need. If you're cash poor and you don't have resources to make donations, there's still certainly things you can do, like just even posting on your social media. Hey, did you know that we have this great, like amazing local resource that you could check out? You do not know who is suffering in their homes right now. You do not know because it is so difficult for them to ask for help. So if you just put up little flags that say, hey, I'm someone you can trust with that information, you will be shocked to discover that people are are dealing with some stuff that you never even knew was happening until you put up that flag to say, hey, I'm an ally. It sounds corny, like some sort of, you know, after school PSA, but it's life saving to just put out into the world that you are someone that someone can trust. Julie, thank you for that. And thank you uh, for all the work that you do and for your time today. Thanks so much for having me. Julie Lalonde, a woman's rights advocate and the author of Resilience is Futile. It's a lovely book. You can check it out at your local indie bookstore. That was the big story for more from us, including the episode I mentioned off the top from last April. You can head to thebigstorypodcast.ca you can find us on Twitter at TheBigStoryFPN. You can talk to us via email, TheBigStoryPodcast, that's all one word, all lowercase, at rci.rogers.com. And of course, we're in your favorite podcast player, Apple, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music, Acast, Pocket Cast. You pick, we're there. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow. In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now.